This is Carlos Bakery. Every week, thousands of cakes and pastries go out these doors. This is the crew, Mia Familia. We're going to take this bakery to the top. They call me Buddy. I'm the boss. It's Chapo. We're back. The yeah. core of four. The, the gang of four. The gang of four. Me, Felix, Brendan, Matt. Fellas, uh, feels like it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, we haven't done anything since the live show we did on, on Thursday. So it's time to, you know, shake that dust off and uh, get back into the swing of things. And, you know, sort of the, the five days to a week we've had off has given me some time to think and reflect on... The course of the show, and I'm proud to announce we're going in a new direction. Okay. Chapo Trap House is going to be a show dedicated exclusively to recapping every episode of Cake Boss, starting with season (laughs) one, episode one, titled, Hey, Mm. I'm the Cake Boss. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, Cake Boss is a show. It's about an Italian-American man, and he's not content. And his familia. His familia. (laughs) In season one, episode one, Buddy the Cake Boss has to make a very special cake for a very special bar mitzvah boy who loves basketball. And they're going to get really conceptual and metaphorical <laughs> by making a, ba- a cake that looks like a basketball. <laughs> hey, we're making a basketball cake. <laughs> it's going to be a basketball. Hey, cake boss. <laughs> cake so, boss is great because it shows vividly why the state of New Jersey needs to be uh, condemned. No, it shows vividly why small business owners are heroes and the yeah. backbone of America. Yeah. yeah. There's a whole uh, dramatic arc where it's going to snow and he he's terrified of the snow and what it'll do to business. I don't know what's going to snow. Oh, my God. <laughs> and and then the, ma- the the mayor comes around. I think Felix, yeah. you were like, uh, he thinks hey. the mayor is in charge yeah. of the weather. <laughs> oh, my, hey, hey, your majesty. Uh, <laughs> look, I know you got a job to do, but could you hold off on the snow for a day? <laughs> yeah, we like to think... And this is probably true. The cake boss has no object permanence. Yes. Uh, he doesn't know how weather works. He doesn't mm-hmm. know what happens to the sun when it's night out. Mm-hmm. No Italian person. Does, <laughs> yes. Actually. We saw one episode where uh, a set of twins came in to get a birthday cake for their mother. <laughs> yeah. And we were we were fantasizing that cake boss sees a set of twins and he's like, ooh, I don't know how this magic trick works. <laughs> hey, he, hey. He keeps looking for the mirror. Yeah. He's like, Which oh, we <laughs> also, uh, another sort of subtle uh, plot that, that unravels throughout the season is he keeps getting a uh, darker and darker spray tan. <laughs> yeah. Until he is not, he is, it's not, it's not, it's not acceptable. He, he looks it, Lebanese by yes. the end of the season. Yes. Every, so there's this one episode where every time they cut to an interview portion, he gets darker and darker. <laughs> his forehead. Yeah, his forehead ridiculous. is like totally black at one point. Oh my God. Yeah, that's the secret to blackface, okay? You, uh, you go by a little bit every day. Yeah. And so by the time that you're at uh, week seven, you got the full black face on, but no one notices because it's like getting into a pool slowly. And then the one we watched la- last night, it featured one of the, the cakes that they were making was for a female bodybuilder. <laughs> yeah. And when they go oh, to the party to show her, she's just in black, all black body, she, black face, like bronze to the point of it was beyond like bronze. a black yeah. woman. Yes, basically. Yeah. It, was, it was absurd. Yeah. That's actually show. why so many people in New Jersey get into bodybuilding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. So... That's the new show. Hope you guys like it. Sure. Uh, the Cake Boss. Chapo Cake Boss. It's We're, me. 
the cake boss <laughs> to at the end of every episode. <laughs> Just kidding, friends. Uh, like this is this is Chapo Classic right now. This is the original. This is the Gang of Four Chapo Classic. And what we we're going to do on today's show is one massive fucking drive-by duck hunt. <laughs> on the New York fucking Times and their just atrocious stable of cretins who uh, populate their op-ed page, starting with the latest edition, one Brett Stevens, okay? This happened, you know, this has sort of been going on for a week now that the Times hired him away from the Wall Street Journal or, you know, and I, I, I got a lot to speak on this. I have fucking hated this creep forever. Again, Google image search him, look up his dumb, smug baby face, mm-hmm. and try to imagine what'll happen first. Him growing a beard or us going to war with Iran. <laughs> one of them he has control over. <laughs> yeah, for those of you who don't know, Brett Stevens is one of those never Trump guys. He's one of the guys who's like, actually, sir, I'm a conservative in the tradition of uh, Burke, Mega Man. <laughs> And Gary Glitter. <laughs> and for whatever reason, we're rewarding neocons now. I don't know why. They seem to exactly get us to the point we're at with so much of their bullshit. But specifically because they're not Trump. Because Brett Stevens doesn't just flat out speak in overt racism or any of well, that. Yeah, actually, he does. He, does. he, does. he, does. he but does. For the does. right group of people. Yeah, yeah right. But you could still do that to Arabs. Yes. Yeah. But... Uh, we're rewarding them for some reason. We're giving him a big fat contract at the New York Times, and boy, did he uh, throw himself a welcome party! <laughs> no, I mean it's it, it makes sense though. I mean, it's not like neoconservatism just got completely pantsed and owned and shown to be completely irrelevant and wildly reviled even among the Republican voter base. I mean, it, this is still a vital and important uh, political ideology. Any of the fucking shithead. Libs who read the New York Times to, well, I like to find out what's going on in the conservative world. It's like, guess what? None of it is Brett Stevens tut-tutting about fucking climate change. It's Steve Bannon reading Camp of the Saints. <laughs> yeah, fucking putting sharpened punji steaks in front of his house to keep refugees away. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this is, this is, this is like the sort of the, the controversy that arose over this was that what people latched on to was that Brett Stevens uh, you know, is a climate change denialist. Previously in the Wall Street Journal, he's compared, uh, you know, people who, you know, environmentalists or people who, like, don't think that people like him or, you know, should be given, you know, these uh, platforms to spout this this nonsense. He's compared them to, like, basically Stalin and Hitler and an attack on his free speech. And that's exactly what he's doing now. But what I think is interesting is I think this, like, for the New York Times audience, I think it's funny that like they latched on to his climate change opinions rather than literally everything else he said and done, which I got to say, look, the climate change denialism is grotesque, but let's be honest, it may be, there's probably nothing we can do about it at this point anyway. I mean, his whole thing is like, he doesn't even deny it. If you read, if you read his column, he says like, I can see that it is true and it is man-made, but like... Uh, I basically don't want to do anything about it or that like I don't want to make any pol- we shouldn't allow any policy that'll basically interfere with global capitalism in any way or impede anyone's ability to like keep making billions I mean, of dollars. Well, hold on a minute. It was his first article. Like he, he like the shit about Arabs is all in his back pocket. But like his shot out of the gate was, hi, everybody. Uh, rising sea levels are cool and bay and fleek. So and, and I mean, it, it will fucking kill us all. I mean, it, like, it'll kill everyone. 
So for me, it is the worst thing. And like I said, it's the first thing he came out of the barrel with. Well, I think the, the point is that reasonable people can disagree on which one of Brett Stevens' opinions marks him as a repellent piece of shit. Matt says it's the global warming. I say it's his unrepentant support of genocidal warmongering, uh, his open support of torture, the fact that he wants to nuke Tehran probably tomorrow. Uh, I'm just going to run through some of his highlights here. Uh, you may remember he appeared on stage with the corpse of Sheldon Adelson and Rabbi Shmuley Biotech at one point, during which Adelson's sort of like shambling uh, reanimated corpse that sort of kept moving and vocalizing things through a series of electrical shocks. He was on stage with Adelson, and Adelson recommended that uh, the United States should preemptively uh, engage in a preemptive nuclear strike on Iran to show that we're serious and Stevens said nothing and just sort of nodded his head sagely. He has referred to Palestinians as basically rabid dogs that need to be culled. He has even said that uh, he actually hates Jewish people, or he says he's glad that he wasn't born not Jewish because he'd be an anti-Semite. You know, so they hire this asshole for no fucking reason. And of course, the defense that the Times proffers from their like public editors or the people in charge of their op-ed pages that look, we're committed to ideological diversity. And like, you know, why would you get so angry by just having a conservative represented? This is what the op-ed page is. And like, this is the phoniest line of all because yeah. in no way is Brett Stevens' point of view underrepresented on the major op-eds pages of like every yeah. major American newspaper. Yeah. It's, it, at, it's at the Wall Street Journal. It's at the New York Times already in the guise of David Brooks, who's yeah. like a slightly softer version of Brett yeah. Stevens. Yeah. It's certainly all of the Washington Post, Fred yeah. Hyatt's shop, yeah. this you know sort of hawkish, pro-Israel, like neoconservative line that is basically only popular on America's op-ed pages. Yeah, if you only read op-ed pages, mm. you'd be like, wait, how did Marco Rubio not win every single yeah, vote yeah. in the Republican primary? Yeah. It's the Why are there fucking op-ed pages? <laughs> yeah, good yeah, question. Yeah, uh, opinion Why writing. Why do these exist? No, I mean, like, I think it's funny when people win awards for op-eds. It's like, that's... You're giving someone an award for basically being your uncle yeah. that never shuts the fuck up. Can you give someone an award for asking how your day was for being the best at that? It's just the same like nuisance behavior. But World's greatest dad. Yeah. But I mean, I think what's interesting about the Stevens hire is that he is an exceptionally uh, grotesque human being, like like an exceptionally rotten and evil person that to you know pick out and hire and like look. More than anything, he's an incredibly mediocre writer. Like, that's the thing. This is, it's not like they just, they picked out some, you know, someone with awful opinions who was, like, witty or, st or stylish in any way. Not that any of these people are, but, like, he's exceptionally mediocre in his thinking. And, like, if you read interviews with him, like, he thinks he's very clever when he's just, like, yeah. his response, like, Jeff Stein of Vox interviewed him, and his response to, like, the global warming stuff was basically to say, you know, my friend believes in global warming, but he just had a kid. Was, would that be rational if he really believed in global warming? It's just like he he took one class on like rational choice theory and then has filtered every opinion through it, which is basically how every dumb person's idea of a smart person talks. Yeah, it, it goes along with this this talking point about intellectual diversity, which is such a college thing like a college campus thing where conservatives are annoyed that they're not represented by the you know rest of the libs on student government or in clubs so then they have their own paper like the harvard salient or all these little sort of pet projects that they then carry over into their 
their professional lives that they direct toward the, the quote-unquote mainstream media that doesn't represent them, even though, as we've just discussed, they're well-represented on op-ed pages and on well, TV. It, yeah, and it's such a narrow band. I will believe that editorial pages are committed to ideological diversity when they give Bob a fakey in a call. <laughs> yeah. yeah you I, know, mean, I want Chairman Bob talking about how we need to like clear the cities of, <laughs> yeah. and have them work in the countryside. They talk this line of ideological diversity and intellectual diversity, but... So the farthest left person that they have on the op-ed page is what Paul Krugman, a pro Gail Collins. Gail Collins, great. That's you don't even have like a Sanders Democrat on there. You don't even Not fucking even. have that. There's no, <laughs> there's nothing for there's no viewpoint for anti-interventionism. Yeah, for fine. Throw Brett Stevens on the Times op-ed page, right? But have. Just even one person who's anti-Zionist as well, yeah. or just not even not even a regular columnist. Run sure, a fucking we'll get op-ed. Pat Buchanan a single... on there. If you want Pat Buchanan, we'll put him on. <laughs> yeah. Like that's what Perrine said a couple yeah, episodes yeah. ago. Is actually the only time you do get some non-interven- uh, non-interventionist stuff like that is when it's a racist right winger paleocon. Right, and I, I think like the Stevens thing, I I think is worth talking about because I feel like sort of like as an addendum to our conversation about the West Wing, I think the reaction to it and like the defensiveness on like the sort of liberal New York Times class, I think really speaks to this fucking brain worm that that haunts the the like the fact that they keep making these same mistakes over and over again, I think speaks to something important about their failure of imagination or their failure to recognize the like the the politics that they're engaging in. And I just want to I want to read here from uh, two uh, two writers who um, I thought both had very good uh, pieces about the Stevens hire. The first is uh, from uh, Ryan Cooper. He writes here, uh, if the Times were really committed to ideological diversity in its op-ed page, it would at a minimum hire a conservative who actually supports President Trump and perhaps more importantly hire someone with a Bernie Sanders style politics. What we see here is the neurotic upper class liberal need for civil debate over important issues stops the moment we reach territory they actually care about. Trump is gauche and uncouth and his media proxies tend to be really weird liars. While Sanders wants to jack up the marginal tax rates a whole lot. A rich, glib, dumb, anti-Trump conservative, on the other hand, can give Upper East Side cocktail parties that frisson of intellectual disputation while conveniently avoiding most of the actual important questions. A little climate denial is just a niggling side detail. I think that's exactly exactly right. And I just feel like, uh, you know, th- this episode is dedicated to uh, hating the New York Times. So I would like to shout out a friend of the show, Twitter user, I hate New York Times. <laughs> and I, I think she gets it exactly right in that, like, she had she said something along the lines of that, like, this liberal mentality that we see here, it's they really believe that if they question their most deeply held beliefs, then, well, their opponents must be doing the same thing. And no, they aren't. Because the difference between liberals and conservatives is that for better or worse, and it's all for worse, conservatives know what they believe in and they know who their enemies are. Liberals don't. And I'm not saying that, like, they, they don't... I just, like, they, they have beliefs, you know? Like I said, they believe in climate change. They think guns are bad. And I think we should, you know, I think they have a certain sincere belief that racial and sexual minorities shouldn't be, you know, oppressed and should are worthy of respect and in full inclusion in our society. But the problem is, all it really amounts to is a set of manners, not really a, a coherent politics. And as such, they get rolled by these very glib sophists like Brett Stevens, who of course are very well-trained. They live and work among the NPR mindset, which has sort of, you know, like I said, trained liberals in a certain respect to 
just sort of like, if you throw them some shit about reasonable discussion, they'll fucking swallow anything. And what you see Brett Stevens doing is, of course, coming in with this, like the climate change is a perfect example and just being like, look, I'm just asking questions. You're not against that, are you? And then when people get angry or just like, why the fuck is the New York Times gratifying this idiotic bullshit? Then he can play, then they play the victim and they go, oh, you know, for months now I've been, you know, the target of the derision of the alt-right for my brave stance against President Trump. But now I see the lefties are just even worse. Um, He also looks like, uh, he reminds me of Clifford, the Martin Short movie. (laughs) He's this boy, like he looks like a boy. I I met him one time um, inside of the Fox News building and he, uh, just very briefly, and he, he looks 12 years old, but he has this, you know, deep evil about him that Martin Short does in the highly <laughs> underrated uh, comedy Clifford. Yeah. Clifford is a fucking great movie. It, it, it's, it holds Incredibly up. funny. But if you even look at me funny, if you do one thing that I find weird, see, you're doing it right now. Can you just act like a human boy for one minute here? Look at me like a person. You can't do it for more than a few seconds. Look at me like a human boy. Uh, the the big thing for me about Stevens is like for you're so when you grow up in a sort of certain sphere, you just associate the New York Times with an established paper that it it, it doesn't really fuck up. But for me, they lost their credibility with Iraq with Judy Miller, and to hire somebody like Stevens is like. It's not just not learning the lesson because not learning the lesson would be maintaining the same op-ed page they had where there is no real voice for anti-interventionism, no real voice for anything. Like any time they've written about Syria or Libya, it's just like the same kind of how dare you Mr. Assad type bullshit. But hiring such a hard neocon in 2017 is just an aggressive fuck you to everyone. It's a fuck you to the millions of people who were mammed in that war. It's what we should expect from big media conglomerates like this. But it's also it's also an insult to the millions of half-wit right-wingers who voted for Trump because they thought he was going to be less uh, imperial in his foreign policy, which was a new a new constituency on the right that emerged as part of this new weird populism. But those none of those people are getting a seat at the New York Times column to understand the right. Instead, you get four versions of the same milk toast weirdos that basically have no constituency at all in the American electorate. Yes, yeah, as I mentioned, Stevens is just a more hardcore version of David Brooks. They are fundamentally the same person in that neither of them can grow a beard or have penises. I want to read one more uh, just just clip here from a, uh, another writer who I thought uh, did a really good job responding to this, and that's Sarah Jones uh, writing at The New Republic. She says here, it's only possible to hire a writer like Stevens if you have no serious moral or intellectual objections to his views. That is absolutely true. And the, and the editors show, and the people who run the New York Times do not. They do not have any serious objections to his views. She goes on. The editors at the Times fall back on one axiom and elevate it to the greatest moral standard of all, the need for intellectual diversity. Bennett calls it, uh, this is a I'm sorry, this James. is uh, James Bennett, uh, calls it the free exchange of ideas. Public editor Liz Spade says it's the antidote to a liberal orthodoxy of thought. The paper's deputy washing editor, Jonathan Wiseman, dismissed Stevens' critics as imbeciles who, quote, can't stand a conservative presence. And I'd just like to say to Jonathan, none of us should stand a conservative presence. We shouldn't stand any of these people. 
least of all at the fucking paper of record. Let the fucking Washington Times or Newsmax or Fox News or yeah. his old Wall Street Journal pick him back up then. He'll be, he'll be fine. Yeah. You don't have to pick him up. Daily Caller signs checks just like the New York Times. Yeah. I, I, I mean... I thought that at least one advantage of Trump winning the nomination would be people going, oh, wait, no one wants to vote for these fucking people anymore. But you're never going to stop a certain type of liberal from living in a fantasy world. I mean, hiring Stevens and this intellectual diversity bullshit, it's... It's as much of a retreat to fantasy as the Harry Potter shit is. I'm, I, I promise this isn't a way to get people to, uh, to uh, a shameless way to get people to subscribe. But I do think our West Wing episode is kind of like the uh, whatever the Rosetta Stone. But I, there, if, a, if they're listening to this one, they uh, they, they they have oh, heard fuck, the West yeah, Wing. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just cut that out. Uh, By the way, no. parenthetically, uh, there was that I saw today. Someone showed me there was an interview with Iannucci. Uh, Armando Iannucci, who yeah. created In the Thick of It and Veep, and he talked about visiting the Obama White House. He was toured by Reggie Love, uh, uh, Obama's body man, Yeah, and he said that he related everything that he showed him to the West Wing. <laughs> Dude, we're right like again. He would, say, he would say, okay, this is, this is the conference room. This is where CJ and Charlie would sit. Oh, oh God, man. So, like, he was... Instead of being like, well, I'm the actual fucking guy. This is what it is. <laughs> he related to his own life and the lives of the other people working in the West Wing through the show. The show was the reality. And they were basically cosplaying, even though they were the actual people. That's like that's like um, if you served three tours in Afghanistan with Fifth Special Forces. And you're like, it was kind of like that, you know, the G.I. Joe episode where they infiltrate uh, Commander Cobra's lair. <laughs> By the way, for people who don't know, body man, when the president has a body man, that refers to a bodybuilder that the president hires <laughs> to inspire him, get bigger around him and just marvel at his muscles. So like, yeah, with Stevens, it's just like, look. The, the New York Times, for better, like, look, it is the paper of record in America. And a lot of the defense of it is just like, okay, look, someone said, like, I, I, some New York Times person was like, look, I, you know, I don't like Stevens' views on climate change, but if you cancel your subscription, you're canceling the, your subscription on, like, are the best climate change reporters in the world. And that may be right. The New York Times does have good reporters. Obviously. Michael Barbro. Yeah, Mikey Barbs, of course. Look, obviously, like, it, the New York Times, even before the Iraq War, like, I'm a big fan of Alexander Coburn and Gore Vidal, mm. and if you read them, they know where all the fucking bodies are buried. This yeah. has been a long-time problem, but at the end of the day, the Times still does do good reporting, but they fucking undermine it all with this horrible op-ed page. I guarantee you Brett Stevens is making 10 times more than anyone who's doing the climate beat for them or covering yep. any actual real politics. Sure. And it's the same thing with the Wall Street Journal. They had great journalists yep. who would day in and day out report the news in a way that directly contradicted the fucking the vision of its hard right op-ed section yeah. editorial policies. Yeah. So, like, yeah, it's just they're insulting the intelligence of everybody when they do this shit. And it just shows that, like, at the highest levels, they do not care. They do not care what product they put out. Or if they do, they have such a fucking dim vision of themselves that, like, this is what they actually think is good. Either way, it doesn't fucking matter because it's just it's, it redounds to the ruin of everyone else. So that's Stevens. Like I said, you know, be, be on the lookout for him to continue to be just an obnoxious shithead uh, day in and day out. 
I mean, fuck. The New York Times hired Bill Crystal for like, yeah. Yeah. like six months. The only or seven reason months. that didn't work out is because, because he's, he's so functionally illiterate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like he he was he was all set up to be a Douthit or a Brooks or now a Stevens, and he was just so bad that on a yeah, like a functional literary level, they had to get rid of. Like him. Stevens is just as bad as Bill Crystal. He's yeah. just as boring and thoughtless in every regard. And my former guys in publishing actually read his book proposal for a book that I think ended up being called like America Alone or something that was published by Sentinel, which is some fucking right wing ghetto for trainables like Dana Loesch or whoever. <laughs> and yeah, it was the la- one of the laziest book proposals I've ever seen. And it's not like this was like, ooh, you know, good luck getting published as a conservative, as a Republican, yeah. the liberal, liberal live right. Because we published books by fucking Max Boot and David Gerlerter. So, but like Stephen's book proposal was like eight pages. Half of it was like fucking, I think I, I seem to remember like half of it being just Xeroxes of his old columns. <laughs> And then, like, I, in the meeting, I just kept my mouth shut because I was just, don't say anything, don't say anything. And then was just very pleased to see it fucking die in front of everyone else because they were like, we can't publish. This is just lazy, just hack work, ideological yeah. hack work on behalf of the most evil people in the universe. Yep. And then he actually apparently got really mad that we didn't even bother to make an offer. Oh, good. So that's a little little gossip for you. I hope, I'm, <laughs> hope that's okay for me to say at this point, but fuck it, I don't work there anymore. <laughs> So moving on from Stevens, uh, let's talk about another New York Times columnist. He's favorite of the show. Legend. Legend. Goat. Ross. <laughs> yeah. Ross. The greatest man to put a, ever put on the op-ed jersey. Raising that, raising that jersey to the rafters. Ross Douthit. He doesn't look as young as Brett Stevens, but he actually is much younger. Than <laughs> far younger, yeah. He's far younger. <laughs> well, I mean, Brett Stevens, though, one of the reasons he is so anti-Iran is that a Persian wizard put a curse on him <laughs> when he was young, so he's always going to look well. And he's been cursed to lick a big lolly yeah. wherever yeah, he goes. It, Brett Stevens uh, Imagine been... my surprise when the tolerant left put me in a child sailor outfit. <laughs> Knocked off my pinwheel hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Spun the propeller on my cap. Ross was getting horny today. Did you guys see yes. that? Oh, hell yeah. Yes. That's what we want to talk about. Uh, we, we'll, we'll get to that. The setup for this is Ross... And again, this column speaks exactly to the fucking... This mentality and to Ross's utter cowardice as, as a fucking writer. He wrote an article last week in the Sunday opinion section titled... Is there a case for Le Pen? Ross, just write the op-ed piece, <laughs> The Case for Le Pen, yeah, okay? Yeah. Why, do, why this fucking demure attitude, right? We all know who you're rooting for, Ross, but he has to fucking, he has to play footsie with his, like, his, the only people who, like, really take him seriously are his liberal, his deluded liberal readers who think that they're like, this is, I'm, I'm feeding my mind, <laughs> I'm feeding my mind a diverse cast of vegetables and opinions. Yeah. Oh, good, oh, good sir, would you go to the greatest banquet in the world and only eat dessert? <laughs> the piece itself is not even worth reading from. I mean, like, as soon as you saw that, that title, you know, yeah, no, Ross, just make the case for fucking mm. Le Pen. Have some fucking balls. Like, just like this is your job. This is what you get paid six figures to do. And he was just, you know, he had to, it, it, in it. He seems to be like, you know, oh, the best line in it actually is he said, you know, Marine Le Pen was, uh, you know, 
instrumental in distancing, uh, you know, the Front National from some of, from the more you know strident anti-Semitism and open <laughs> fascism of her father. And he says, "Of course, they are positioning for votes." And I just love that "of course" in there. That's yeah. always a tell, like yeah, you yeah. know, it's just like, mm, "Of course they're doing that." You know, this should be taken into consideration. It's like as if you would have a problem with any of their open anti-immigrant. Sure. It's a to be sure. Yeah, to be sure. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, and you know, he he also mentions that you know many of her uh, anti-immigrant uh, racist views are quite common in French politics. So it's hard to you know single her out. And it's just like, well, if everybody's doing it. Yeah, why not? In a way, <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs> so uh, Ross is a uh, an utter coward, of course. Yeah. But um, Matt, of course, was referring to. Uh, this amazing oh, tweet today from Ross that I think is actually the most grotesque thing he's ever <laughs> oh, written. God. And this this surpasses even the chunky Reese Witherspoon incident God. or any of the just soul-shatteringly embarrassing moments from privilege. Doubt that. NYT today, <laughs> 5 3 17, 434 p.m. He was remember there's context. He's uh he was live tweeting the French presidential debates like an asshole. One, 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 one hand. Scintillating, yeah. 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 <laughs> Ross writes, what if Hillary had Le Pen's smoker's voice instead of her own? What if uh, Le Pen was uh, 15 feet tall and uh, <laughs> she crushed me under her feet and I just got a mouthful of toe jam and she called me a little worm and rubbed my head into the carpet? What if uh, What if she strapped me to a radiator and beat me with Hot Wheels tracks until a crucifix <laughs> formed on my back? Le Pen is doing breath play with the French electorate at the moment cutting off their oxygen just enough to make things interesting. And, my, and Ro, of course, the answer to Ross, if, if Hillary had Le Pen's smoky Kathleen Turner voice, the answer is you'd be cranking off thinking about her and not Le Pen. I feel great. <laughs> <laughs> He's just Patty and Selma. Ah, uh, you got a van you can throw an old broad into. <laughs> I gotta go change wigs. <laughs> I'm chilling. In Cedar Rapids, <laughs> I may not be the mask, but I'm smoking. <laughs> there he is. Oh, oh I, I love that. Like Ross is never thirsty for like the way like David Brooks is, for instance, for hot younger yeah. women. Yeah. Let it's, me email that. <laughs> it's always for like these crones, like yeah. fucking Le Pen yeah. or whatever. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, he's like. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, what was that a Simpsons joke where it's like, what you don't think, uh, you you don't think Eudora Wealthy is erotic? <laughs> I find in- intellect and power sexy. No, but uh, sorry, Ross just had a follow up uh, to his "Is there a case for Le Pen?" column, or like I said, if he had a, a fucking any editors there, the column would have just been titled "The Case for Le Pen." He follows it out that says, "In my Sunday column, I raised the possibility that a vote for Marine Le Pen in next weekend's French presidential runoff might be more defensible than a vote for Donald Trump in 2016." The internet did not agree, and perhaps neither did Le Pen herself, since she rewarded my controversial foray by immediately getting mired in a plagiarism scandal. Because it's like that's yeah, the worst yeah, that's, thing you can do. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's yep. what's bad about her is yep. that she yeah. plagiarized. Uh, a when you're a grade grubbing shithead, that is the worst. Yeah, thing yeah that, that is yeah. true. And I do like the idea that he took it personally. Like, you know. He sent her the le- the note that said, "Do you like me?" Circle yes or no. <laughs> uh, ma- uh, Mademoiselle uh, Le Pen, the American who looks like a thumb, has endorsed you. <laughs> uh, we are going to win. We're g- every French person loves Ross Dutat. So yeah, I, th- I think that the point with 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 
do that over there again, like I said earlier, is just like, I don't know, it genuinely baffles me why anyone buys like this game he does where he plays, like I said, demure or he like, you know, yeah. he's just like doesn't doesn't show too much leg, you know, in any of his columns. But like, it's obviously what he believes in. Yeah, right? it's, it's like he's trying to coyly uncross his legs to show you a little bit and a turd rolls out of his pants. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I would describe Ross's writing. It's, it's evocative. That is quite an image. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's my um, it, ill-reviewed uh Basic Instinct remake. It's a little this, bit of a slapstick element. <laughs> now I'm just thinking of the scene from Basic Instinct, but when she uncrosses her legs, it's just Ross's face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know, and I'm jacking off. <laughs> Moving on from Ross, uh, again, another great New York Times columnist back in the news this week. Of course, I'm referring to David Brooks. <laughs> yeah, put on future... Uh, Pussy overrated. <laughs> I won. That's <laughs> David's theme song now. So, what did David do? Uh, David has taken a break from writing columns entitled The Crisis of Western Civilization to get married. Oh, he got yes. married again. We yeah, mentioned- that's why the future song. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Mazel tov, David. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, you know, cheers to the happy couple. Uh, we mentioned this, uh, Jacob, on the Jacob Bacharach episode back in Pittsburgh. He actually is now marrying... This was announced in the, the Washington Post wedding section. He is marrying his former research assistant from the book The Road to Character, Ms. Ann Schneider, soon to be Miss Ann Schneider Bro- Mrs. Ann Schneider Brooks. Hey, uh, look, sometimes on The Road to Character, you run into some walls and you have to <laughs> smash down the back of them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we mentioned this I'm before. Just, I'm just glad that he's getting married because there was a while there where he was really a danger of, you know, doing becoming an opium addict or uh, doing crime or, or, or alcoholism, you know. Yeah. Like, as we know, uh, uh, getting married is, is the solution to social ills. So yep. he, he really dodged a bullet. by. I, by this getting- is difficult for me. I Like the words are sticking in my throat. But I do have to say, Matt Iglesias had a funny tweet about this oh, yesterday. Yeah. Sometimes he does I know, that. it was annoying. It, it, sometimes he does it. So I actually hate. I, I I hate. I don't think I hate him more than when he has a good tweet. As Golden My Ear says, the worst thing the terrorists make us do is retweet them. <laughs> unironically, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I unironically retweeted Matt for the first time. Matt Matty Iglesias rather because uh he he it was like he was quote tweeting the the wedding announcement from the Washington Post and he was like maybe David can write a column about how poor people can find themselves in marriages like this. <laughs> 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 but you know D- David Brooks is you know upholding the time-honored bourgeois values of fidelity, humility and uh and and hard work and thriftiness in marriage through his amazing wedding registry. Oh my god. It has since been taken down, but for a brief glorious moment yesterday I was able to browse the <laughs> David Brooks wedding registry and at the beginning of it it said, like, you know, thank you so much here. Like, you know, these are our selections. We accept these gifts in the spirit of community that it represents. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the gifts, and it, it, made, it made clear that this could be a family gift, was a $2,600 set of three plates that were, like, called foam plates. They were white and gold foam plates were, like, some of the edges looked like that awful microfoam that, like, dumb, trendy restaurants have. Yeah. 
hideous. Well, rich people are so fucking boring. <laughs> it's you, amazing. You spend $3,000 on everything and you're like, oh, I want some plates that cost a lot for some reason. <laughs> when I was scrolling through his wedding registry, it looked like a Williams of a Williams and Sonoma <laughs> catalog. And all I could think about is like the, the fucking Jonah Hill character from Wolf of Wall Street, who's just like the Jewish guy who just dresses like a wasp. Like this is like the most boring wasp knockoff shit. Yeah. And the other funny thing, I was like, well, you know... It's his second marriage, her first. Uh, the second wife has to get something. And in this case, it's several Bobby Flay cookbooks. <laughs> Chintzy. It's, yeah, it was just, I mean, look, I want that Le Creuset Dutch oven. Yeah. Those things are great and like $600. Oh, another thing that was on the David Brooks wedding Asabian. registry. Sabian. <laughs> You mispronounced it too. It's oh, Sibian. Oh, it's Sibian. Okay. Oh, oh. Sabian? Are you fucking <laughs> what? 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 No, that's how I've heard it said. Sabian. That's how I've heard it said. God like damn it. football coach. Nick Nick Sabian. <laughs> 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 no, it uh yeah, no. Definitely it, no, the the Sibian wasn't on there, uh, but one of those like plug-in Hitachi magic wands, that was ooh, definitely on there. That's good right. shit. Also on the David Brooks and Snyder wedding registry, the Come Town Endorse six hundred dollar Vitamix really? <laughs> is yeah. also on yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, that's Brett. Him and Brett Stevens got into an argument where David Brooks is like, "You're fucking gay, dude. You copied me." <laughs> I was. I talked about getting the Vitamix first. <laughs> Little disappointed. It's not a Juicero. I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is the wedding registry is kind of interesting to me. The David Brooks thing because it goes back to something I was thinking about Brett Stevens. Stevens and Brooks are interesting because they're they badly want to be European conservatives. They want to be like Peter Hitchens. They want to be in that tradition, yeah. of sort of downtrodden into people with some sort of intellectual heritage. However, yeah. fraught and bullshit it is. They'll never but, be like Hitchens though, because they can't allow themselves to just be utterly miserable and despondent. Right, exactly, they, have to, they believe exactly. in happiness. That's right, the thing right. They That's like. the problem with them. They have that sort of American Protestant madness. But there is this neuroses among. American establishment conservatism that they want to be that and never can be. And looking at the bullshit that he get, he gets, it's like he's like, oh, what would a what would a fancy guy get? And it's like, oh, plates that cost a lot. And the, the Bobby Flay cookbooks. Yeah, P- Peter Hitchens's uh, registry where he would just be like, just a um, bit of just toast, some marmalade. <laughs> Give um, me a I don't, toast. I don't, Boy, uh, yeah. <laughs> give me a slave, <laughs> a tombstone for our nation. <laughs> yeah. But with uh, the American ones, you get this fucking uh, yuppie bullshit. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. yeah, like they, they believe in happiness, and they believe that like happiness is like like a moral value. Protestant work ethic, and they think and that man, like, it's such a sad, pathetic, impoverished version of happiness. Yo, yeah, yeah, sure. It's like having a big shitty fucking McMansion in the middle of like rural Maryland and a and a bunch of matching plates. <laughs> Jesus fucking yep. Christ. Yep. It's like you read Nietzsche and it's like, you know, this mat this last man sounds like he's got it pretty good. Yeah. yeah I mean they're they're sort of they're pull up your pants stuff. It's a little rooted in that because whenever they talk about like who do these guys who did they hate the most in the mid two thousands? It was Terrell Owens. He was yeah. sort of the public menace. 
And, you know, you could say it's because he promotes thug culture and he's ungrateful and blah, blah, blah. But really, it's because he was a rich guy who spent his money on cool shit, actually. <laughs> it's the real reason they hate all that. Yeah, that's why they hate rappers, yeah. basically. Like, that's why they, they scold black people mainly. It's yeah. just because, like, they, they seem like, like, or like celebrities. Just like they hate anyone who has money and spends it on anything other than playing fucking golf yeah. and just being a generally joyless, humorless so that that's uh that's david brooks any, any further thoughts on the brooks's but you know seriously mazel tov to him and, yeah, and schneider there was a funny um i it's just, uh, again 23 years his junior yeah oh yeah? yeah yeah how come it's how come everyone says it's fucked up when i try to date people that are 23 years younger than me? <laughs> <laughs> leave it in <laughs> okay it's your reputation i've said worse uh, i've said worse today but um yeah uh no, I, I hope him and his shitty plates and his uh, Vitamix and his wife, who he has literally nothing in common with <laughs> and cannot carry a conversation with and who endures sex with him uh, when she allows it to happen with grim resignation, are very happy. He David Brooks doesn't fuck like a normal person. He puts his head into the vulva and just lists vir- virtues. <laughs> Honesty. Either that or he fucks like a turtle. Like, you've ever seen video of like a tortoise trying to get get it up? Hell like yeah, that. dude. <laughs> no, Matt, what happens? Oh, it's great. Yeah, well, they, they get on top and then they do individual thrusts and they make this really weird noise when they do it. They're like, yeah, it's so funny. It's so fucking funny. <laughs> yo, if you listen to this shit right now, yo, check out some of that turtles. Check out those, some of those turtles, yo. Yeah, that's imagine David Brooks, his shiny fucking chrome dome doing that. His glasses are all fucked up. And like I said, I, I, I opened this up. To, one of his most recent columns is talking was literally titled "The Crisis of Western Civilization." And then I looked at his fucking wedding gift registry, and it was like the perfect fucking. <laughs> it's like it represents everything that is fucking like just decadent, deserves to be wiped out in yeah. our fucking doomed culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah that I mean, one really that 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 art that article ruled because his argument was is that the reason Trump won and the reason there's all the rise of this nihilistic populism is because colleges stopped teaching about the greatness of Western civilization. Oh, God. Because, you know, every fucking dipshit who voted for Trump, you know, it's like, I loved America until my, uh, you know, until my semiotics instructor at Brown <laughs> made me question American values. Get the fuck Are out of here. Most Americans don't go to college, you fucking dipshit. All of America was like uh, Tone and Carmella when uh, AJ started reading Howard Zinn. And they're like, <laughs> what the fuck you say? <laughs> <laughs> this is a funny story of Chomsky. Uh, he went to the dentist and uh, the dentist said, you know, your teeth are all right, but you've got to stop grinding them. He said, I don't grind my teeth. He said, well, you do. The enamel is worn off. Well, I don't. So Mrs. Chomsky was there, and he asked this, well, when he sleeps, does he grind his teeth? He said, no, no, he doesn't grind his teeth. Well, they both got terribly interested. When did it happen? Well, they finally found out that in the morning while having coffee, and she might be out of the room, he would start to read the New York Times, and his teeth would... Mind grind, too, when I read that paper, particularly the things they do to that scientist at Los Alamos, or their invention of the whitewater plot. It's a bad paper. Okay, uh, should we move on to Rod? 
I think it's we have no choice but we, to, yeah. We got to. Yeah, let's fuck with we some Rod, to. dude. Classic. This is, like, a man this is, who should have a New York Times column. Yeah, at least it would be surprising. Doesn't. Yeah. At least like he when I read, oh, he would blow fucking Ross out of the yeah. water. Yeah. Like the, yeah, because yeah, like Ross has a little bit of religious pathology and weirdness. Yeah. But it's not nearly as interesting or as catastrophic as Rod's. No. They How, should totally just bounce I, him I think, and give Rod that spot. As Ezra Klein actually had some tweet, very earnest tweet where he was like, Doing your fantasy like op-ed yeah. draft. Who are your top five? Oh, and like yo, 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 Rod Dreher would might be on mine because, like I said, at least he'd be surprising. That's on the that's on the theocratic right. Yeah. On the left, I'm bringing in Bad Dominicana. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bad Dominicana, Rod Dreher, Mike Sternovich. Yep, yep. yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. a vacant, you Bob know, could, again, Hell balancing yeah. out Hell the yeah. left. And then I think right in the middle, uh, Kevin Drum. I was gonna say get get Ron back out of retirement. Yeah, dude, Dream it's team. time for Ron to ride again. Yeah, he would be. Yo, a Ron, the game needs you more than ever. He would be the pivot. He would be the fulcrum that the that the uh, that the uh, teeter totter would be balanced. Yeah, on. yeah. yeah. ideological like, teeter totter. By the way, every, I guarantee you that that fucking question: Who draft fantasy draft your five? Uh, New York Times columnist. That's something that Ezra says on all of his first dates. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, now I'm thinking about Rod, like trying to synthesize between Bad Dominicana and Rod Dreher. And he's like, "Well, it's true that uh, whites can't uh, grow butt meat because their backs <laughs> are too long, but it's also true that uh, the collapse of virtues is leading to uh, gender tyranny. But I think that if we could get uh, Bad Dominicana and Rod together in a commune, we could figure this out. So, like I said, yo, this is this is Chapo classic, man. Yeah. This is fucking, yeah. this is old school Chapo. So we got to talk about Rod Dreher because man, oh man, the New Yorker had a gigantic profile of him the other week that fucking delivers. Okay? One of the best things. It I've fucking read. delivers. Okay. Like I said, if you're listening to this, you already know Rod. You already know we fucks with Rod Dreher heavy. You know who it is. You know the story. You already know who it is. <laughs> but this is this is the New Yorker profile by Joshua Rothman, who, if you may remember, was the fucking rube who was so impressed by JD Vance. And man oh man, he does this. He's even more impressed with Rod, if you can believe it. So this is a long one and there's there's a lot to do, but fuck it. Let's just do it. Yeah. Because this is gonna be fun. Yep. Um I'm just gonna read now from the beginning. Rod Dreher was 44 when his little sister died. At the time, he was living in Philadelphia with his wife and children. His sister, Ruthie, lived in their Louisiana hometown outside St. Francisville, population 1,712. Dreher's family had been there for generations, but he had never fit in. As a teenager, when his father and sister went hunting, he stayed in his room and listened to the talking heads. He read a movable feast and dreamed of Paris. He left as soon as he could, becoming a television critic for the Washington Times and then a film critic for the New York Post. He was living in Cobble Hill on 9-11. It goes on blah, blah, blah. He wrote a book called Country Cons. It's just, you know, uh, he... Uh, What's his favorite Talking head song? This isn't my bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> this is not my beautiful life. This is not my beautiful wife. Um... So it goes on to talk about, you know, he sort of moved away as soon as he can, uh, but his sister stayed at home in, you know, Shits Parish Swamp, Louisiana. Mm. And uh, he said, uh, you know, his sister never really related to him and she found him annoying. Imagine that. Mm. In truth, 
Annoying wasn't the half of it. There was a rift between Dreher and his family. His father, a health inspector, had never forgiven him for moving away. His nieces found urbanity condescending. During one New Year's visit, Dreher made bouillabaisse for his parents and his sister. They watched him cook the stew and then let him serve it, then declined to eat any. They preferred meals made by a country cook. Later, Dreher learned that Ruthie and her husband were struggling financially and resented the fact that he made twice their combined salaries for reviewing movies. His father considered him a user, someone who succeeded by flouting the rules. Dreher loved his father and sister for their rootedness and vibrancy. He longed for their approval with painful intensity. So, okay. so like His this is dad was also the inspiration for the title character in Larry the Cable Guy Health Inspector. <laughs> <laughs> so here's this thing. We're like, okay, so it's... It, it, Rod, it was sort of, you know, the outsider in his, like, you know, sort of uh, conservative, Louis, like, rural Louisiana family. He feels guilty about it. You know, he was sort of artistic as a child, creative, if you will, and then got the hell out of there as soon as possible, moved to the big city, as a lot of people do. Um, so, and then, and then he talks about how uh, his sister eventually, unfortunately, gets sick. And uh, she dies, and he goes home, and like experiences like the how rooted she was in her community, and how beloved she was by everyone. Um, and it says here, because Dreher is at once spiritually and intellectually reckless, his blog has become a destination for the ideologically bi curious. <laughs> <laughs> a bad Dreher post can be mean spirited and overwrought, but when he's at his best, his posts are unique. Deeply confessional, achingly sincere, intellectually searching. <laughs> the day after Ruthie died in September, Ruthie is his sister. The day after Ruthie died in September 2011, Dreher wrote a 2,700 word entry describing her funeral. Ruthie's funeral made him wonder about his own life in Philadelphia. He and his wife, Julie, had friends there and a rich cultural life, but it was impossible to replicate the deep roots his family had in St. Francisville, which seemed an illuminated place. The people there had an expansive, natural, spontaneous relationship to God that made his own faith feel intellectual and disembodied by comparison. So, like, there's this whole Rod thing where, like, he feels guilty that he got out of St. Francisville, which sounds like a fucking miserable place to live. Yeah. Like, his family wouldn't even eat food he prepared for him because that's how fucking backwards and cruel they are. Yeah. This but is Ro a good origin story for a villain so <laughs> yeah, far. Yeah, I actually yeah. am quite uh, um, compelled by it. And, like, so, like, and he feels guilty because he has a good job and, like, a friends and family and, like, you know, in, in a city or whatever. And he feels bad, so he moves home, hoping to be, you know received warmly by this faith community that he's been searching out his whole life. Um, would it surprise sure you to know that it didn't work out at all? Um, this March, Dreher published The Benedict Option, a strategy for Christians in a post-Christian nation, which David Brooks in The Times has called the most discussed and important religious book of the decade. It asks... Why Is that including uh, Scott Adams' The Religion War? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Brooks is full of shit if he hasn't read The Religion War. <laughs> As a longtime reader of Dreher's blog, an experience alternately enthralling and exasperating, I'd always wondered like he'd, what he'd be like in person. And now this is where I take issue with Rothman. If you are indeed a longtime reader of Dreher's blog, and he acknowledges it can be overwrought and at times exasperating, Joshua, why didn't you include any of the actual examples from Rod's blog? Because a New Yorker reader 
would read this entire profile and be yeah. like, oh, this sounds like a, you know, an interesting and spiritually convicted man who's, you know, searching for something deep and meaningful as community. What they won't find is uh, what is <laughs> yeah. at the top of Rod Dreher's actual blog at the American Conservative today, which is a write-up of the Alton Sterling verdict, the guy who was killed by the police in Baton Rouge last year, in which he lists his entire rap sheet and refers to him as, quote, uh, Alton Sterling was a thug with a long criminal rap sheet and goes on to just quote at length and just basically imply that the police did nothing wrong. He said, it's not racism and it certainly isn't police brutality. Readers yeah, of The New Yorker okay. will not find any quotes from any of the things we've fucking covered of Rod, which are his incredibly cruel and nasty things that he said about fucking gay people, trans people, literally calling them freaks yep. and like just like... These sort of disease bodies up, that like making yeah. up insane fake stories to scare other to scare you know, other witless like fucking rubes. Yeah. yeah, I mean Rod Dreher's mind is just like a violent, terrifying hellscape. Yeah, well, and this like a better writer would have been like, okay, here's this freak. You know how was he made? But this, it, it's like it's like he he's profiling Augustine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's this Rod? So he says. So he gets. So Sir Joshua is very excited. He gets to meet Rod, and he says, "I nearly didn't recognize him when we met earlier this spring at a Manhattan steakhouse." Uh, without his glasses, Dreher, now 50, has an open, vulnerable, and strikingly handsome face. His graying beard and fashionably upswept haircut suggest a Confederate soldier in a historical drama. He wore black Chelsea boots and an oversized black leather jacket, and around his left wrist, a knotted prayer rope. Nice to meet you, brother, he said. He speaks slowly, quietly, with a soft Louisiana drawl that I'm sure is not at all affected or played up. Um... <laughs> Over dinner, Dreher, who was observing Lent, confined himself to oysters and crab cakes. I learned what happened what when... What a hard Lent. <laughs> what is he giving up for Lent? <laughs> Steak. Yeah. <laughs> I learned what happened when he moved back to St. Francisville. Rod says, The thing that I dreamed of and hoped for didn't work out. They just wouldn't accept me. Not my sister's kids and not my dad and mom. They just could not accept that I was so different from them. I worshipped my dad. He was the strongest and wisest man I knew, but he was a country man, a southern country man, and I just wasn't. All that mattered was I wasn't like them. It just broke me. He fell into depression and was diagnosed with chronic mono, then went into therapy and read Dante. <laughs> but like, okay, so... He talks about his father and sister like they're saints and shit, but like all of the colors yeah, come through like about his asshole. They're, they yeah, sound like <laughs> fucking assholes. I've been thinking a lot about my own longing for order, he said. I think it has to do with my dad. He was such a force. You thought the, th the sun was in the sky in the morning because daddy had hung it there while he was making Ooh. our honey buns and getting us ready for the school bus ride. <sighs> Ray O'Dreher grew up so poor that his family hunted squirrels for food. He liked to build, repair, hunt fish, and his forearms were freckled from the sun. Again, Josh, how would Joshua Rothman know this? Yeah. To, like, Did Rod give him these descriptions? of his father's uh, yes. burly yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. freckle spackled uh, arms jo Josh if you're interested I have an entire photo album of the dad's <laughs> forearms he said he raised Rod and Ruthie with a firm sense of right and wrong 
When he saw or read about an alcoholic, a philanderer, a shoplifter, he said, as if stating a fact, that's not how we do things. That doesn't at all sound like an unbearable Calvinist prick yeah. who everyone hates. Listen Wait, to- so can I ask a uh, point of uh, clarification? What was Rod's religion growing up? Like, what does it oh, say? Like, oh, it's just Baptist. Sunni, Sunni Islam. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, it, doesn't say, it doesn't say, I assume Southern Baptist. Because I know yeah. he's had a couple uh, I believe they were Yazidis. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Got but it. The thing about this is like, Okay, you. We can look at this guy and think, "Geez, this guy seems like a unpleasant shithead," and nobody should feel inferior for not living up to their weird expectations. But like Rod, like all of us, are brought up in a culture where all the people making culture are basically like Rod in that they are the sensitive theater kids who left their shitty hometowns, and they are feeling they'll always feel weirdly inadequate because of that. Because of America's frontier ethos and what we think it means to be a man, mm-hmm. and so this this like just like hateful, closed off uh, uh, assholishness gets turned into rugged, taciturn masculinity and something to be chased after and placated instead of something to be rightly fucking uh, walked away from. Uh, let me just say, we're not like that on Chapo Trap House. We think all men are swole. Yep, we think all men are alphas. We think all men have the gorilla mindset. That's right. We're male body positive. Here, here's some more. Uh, here's some more tales from Rod's youth. Once, when Dreher was seven, he did something mean to his sister. He doesn't remember what, and his father told him it was time for a spanking. Dreher lay face down on the bed while his dad removed his belt. Then Rusi, who was five, ran into the room and threw herself over him. She cried, whip me, daddy, whip me. After a moment, <laughs> uh. Dreher's father and sister left. He remained on the bed, mystified by what had happened. He sometimes wondered if his sister's later wariness towards him flowed not from a divergence of values, but from some long-forgotten habit of childhood cruelty for which he was never punished. Uh, did you see the remake of Straw Dogs that took place in Louisiana yeah. a couple no. years ago? I didn't. Uh, yeah, well, I, did. okay. I think this is the transcript. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> One more. When Dreher was 14, he went hunting with Ray and Ruthie, and with a shotgun, he killed two baby squirrels. Filled with remorse, he sat on the ground and cried. You sissy, his father growled. Dreher describes his father and sister as, quote, Bayou Confucians. He explains, oh. they had this idea that if you did what you were supposed to do, you would succeed. I didn't do those things, but I didn't fail, and that drove them crazy. Again, these sounds like people you'd be fucking glad to cut out of yeah, your life. Yeah. If you fucking were successful. You'd yeah. be fucking thrilled not to have yeah. to deal with them oh again. Oh, my God. It goes on to talk about, you know, he was he goes to college. He started out as sort of like left wing. But then he got religion, okay? Mm. For some reason, he had some, he had some weird <laughs> part of his personality that presented some sort of gaping hole in himself that he felt the need to atone for, but also correct in himself. So he turned to religion. Yeah. The Catholic religion. Yep. Surprisingly, yep. usually that doesn't happen that way. That. But um, so it says here, he began to take religion seriously. When he was 18, he went to see Pope John the Paul II at the Superdome in New Orleans. Ooh, good line coming the, up. The, the Pope appeared and a thought flashed in Dreher's mind. I wish he were my dad. 
Oh my god. Okay. At 26, he converted to Catholicism. Fed up with what? If that had been his dad, he would have had a few other things to get over from his childhood. (laughs) Uh, Rod would have been getting a different type of Bayou Confucianism. (laughs) Whip me, El Papa. Whip me. Uh, fed up. Okay, so he says at 26 he converted to Catholicism. Again, big shock for someone with his fucking. Uh, did not see that. Com- did not see that coming. Uh, he said he converted to Catholicism. Fed up with what he perceived as his own caddishness. He had once dated a girlfriend longer than he should have. He decided to embrace chastity until marriage. You know. Just like how you know, regular like a, man just, here. Like, this is regular, regular guy, guy shit. Regular, regular guy shit. You convert to Catholicism because you're fed up with your caddishness, where you dated one girl and then just decided to be celibate until marriage. Okay, yes. <laughs> moving on. Yeah. Uh, Dreer left Catholicism in 2006. Okay, so this goes on here. Yeah, then he became Orthodox. He, then right? he, he left Catholicism in 2006 because of the sexy covering the Catholic sex abuse scandal for the Post and the American Conservative. He became Eastern Orthodox. He talked about. It goes on to talk about. He met this guy Father Matthew in St. Francisville when he moved home and like became Orthodox. Who told him, uh, "You have no choice as a Christian. You've got to love your dad, even if he doesn't love you back in the way you want him to. You cannot stand on justice. Love matters more than justice because the higher justice is love." When Dreher struggled to master his feelings, Father Matthew told him to perform a demanding Orthodox ritual called the Optina Rule. He cited the Jesus Prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, hundreds of times a day. This is, all of this is just shit that people invented because they didn't know how to read or have TV. <laughs> this is just bullshit. Like, this is so You know, stupid. like, I have to say, like the Douthat episode we did, um, at this stage... I am, you know, this is this is shitty to hear happening to a person. Yeah, and I can see, like, so far how he became what he is now from just this unrelenting and crushing insecurity that gets ripped open by all these religious li- and yeah and, and familial assholes. Yeah, like it's a turn. scab that'll never hear, and that he yeah. literally picks open every day on his blog at yes. several thousand words a clip. Yes. Looking back on his time in St. Francisville, Dreher thinks that if he hadn't moved there and then forced himself to follow the rules, prayer, proximity, love, he would have stayed an angry child forever. Which is good because he's in no way he's childish or petulant now. Yeah, he. Thank God he uh, fixed that. No cruelty, uh, <laughs> spite, anything like that. Obsessions. Yeah, normal so the, guy. Like I said, the 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 piece goes on, and uh, Joshua goes to uh, a Washington D.C. book signing and Q and A session with Dreher, and I just like the, this little detail here, where it says. Uh, he wrestles with his addiction to blogging and to Twitter and has covered the Apple logo on his laptop, which he calls My Precious, with a sticker of the Benedictine emblem. Uh, <laughs> no logo. No logo, uh, Rod. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it goes, it, like I said, there's a lot There's a lot of stuff here about uh, where they visit um, this intentional, what, what is known as an intentional community. Uh, this place called Hyattsville, Maryland, that is sort of like a living example of these Benedict Option communities that Rod talks about. This, this like, uh, let me find it here. Is that just a gay conversion therapy it, center? It basically is. Yeah. Uh, so this is uh, Hyattsville, Maryland, a small suburb of Washington, D.C. The community has no name. Residents just call it Hyattsville, but judging from the size of its two gendered list serves, <laughs> barn raisers for men, and Hyattsville Catholic women. Around 200 Catholic families live there in modest brick homes with front porches. And so it's this like, 
intensely Catholic community where like everybody like lives together in these kind of like this weird communal thing. And I was just, you know, reading uh, the description of, of this community and I was just thinking, uh, T minus five minutes till something unspeakable emerges Good about God. this shit. Like well, you imagine, I, I, look like, in highly religious, closed off <laughs> societies. There's never any problem where uh, there's a clandestine group of men who invent some reason why they have to have sex with children. That never happens. That's why you actually do that to prevent that from happening. Exactly. <laughs> I like this line here. It said. Well, on the men's listserv, we talk about trading tools, one of the locals say, to general laughter. In a teacherly way, Dreher broke in. There's something very Benedictine about the simple things, like exchanging uh. tools, he said. What, that, would That's be, <laughs> that would be funny if like tools is a, is a code word for child, and it, Rod just happened onto a community of pedophiles, and he's like, you guys remind me of the monk Theolosis. He left the Roman Empire, and they're like, what what the fuck are you talking about? This like we're understand. literally all pedophiles, Rod. <laughs> we're not religious. Uh, he go, he says. Uh, speaking of Hyattsville, he's. Uh, this is one of the residents says. If you want to be a little more private or isolated, then this might not. Be, this might be a kind of difficult place to live. But that's the point of intentional community. I tell myself I choose to be part of this. I want my neighbors to talk to me about their lives. Their conversation is a higher good. I bet this community is great. Like if you're a kid and you're gay or different in any way. From yeah, anyone. in literally any way. I yeah. bet you're going to have a it's funny. great upbringing. You'll grow up to be normal. <laughs> it's funny how Rod grew up a bunch of like among a bunch of like pinch-faced assholes who literally couldn't countenance anything that was even slightly different from the, the exact way that they believe and do things. It's good that, you know, he uh, he came up uh, to see how bad that is and would never inflict that on other people. A journey. Yeah. Um, the one way that I could get away from the thing that made me hate myself my entire life is the exact same thing that wait so is he myself. did he live in this no, he's visiting Heightsville okay. as part of his like book tour because this is uh, 200 easy book sales okay. believe Sad yeah. basically have to read this book people today they want community without sacrifice Jer said they want the good hate things that. like hate you that. know fucking having to make small talk with your miserable neighbors yeah those are the good things and they want to edit out the bad things like you know the fact that your children may be abused by um, village elders. <laughs> but you cannot have that closeness without being up in each other's business. The benefits come at a price. And again, like I said, in these intentional religious communities, that price is usually some sort of Sex crime. unspeakable well, child abuse yeah. or you know, keeping women in a state of basically illiterate domestic servitude. Yeah. Um, continuing here. Now he's back in uh, New York and he's talking there back in New back. York City. Back in the New York groove. And he's talking to some cool, young, Ben-op Catholics in Ugh. New York. I just want to read this description of this couple. They live in a water tower on the top of the Chrysler. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to read this description. She was 27, worked for an altruistic for-profit, and wore a t-shirt advertising the Metaphysical Transit Authority. He was 24, uh -huh. sported a bow tie, and worked as an editorial assistant for First Things. Cool. Wouldn't you like them to have be your neighbors? I, I love nothing more than an altruistic for-profit. <laughs> Those are the best. <laughs> so it goes on. Uh, here, here's here's sort of like the, where where Rothman sort of like in, 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 there's a little bit of a turn here. Like we've been building to this. Obviously, if you uh, me reading this, I could see this coming a mile away. Uh, anyone else? Probably, if you're like maybe mildly aware, you can see what's coming. 
I'm reading from Rothman here. He says, Toward the end of our time together, I told Dreher that his life stories seemed very similar to those of many gay men I knew. He had grown up in the <laughs> no, South. What? He had grown up in the South with a hypermasculine father who found his sensitivity and difference alienating. He had gone away to find himself and since then had struggled for a place in the world he left behind. Surely I said he must have some sympathy for gay Christians. And yet Dreher is certain that gay marriage is wrong. Like many Orthodox Christian intellectuals, Dreher holds labyrinthine views on homosexuality. He is opposed to same-sex marriage, but in favor of civil unions. In principle, he is against gay adoption, but in practice, he told me, there are so many gay couples who are wonderful parents, I find it hard to maintain any ardor for stopping it. Oh, how nice of him. Very generous. Gay marriage in this account, and then he goes on to say, uh, this is his critique of gay marriage, which is like, it's inscrutable to anyone with a mind in, from this century. Uh, he says, gay marriage in this account is a stepping stone to a profoundly technologized society in which the rejection of nature is complete. Today, it's sex reassignment surgery and surrogacy. Tomorrow, we'll be genetically engineering our way into a post-human future. Okay. Uh, what I want to say about right. this is like, you could tell from the first paragraph of this fucking article about how he spent his time listening to Talking Heads while his dad was watching football and then he went to the big city to become an arts critic. Okay. We've like, okay, like this has been the joke about Rod for basically as long as he's been doing the show that his like, again, very intense obsession with the gay agenda and actual, the actual physical act of homosexual sex uh, is, you know, in my opinion, fairly obviously signaling something deep inside himself that he's trying to deal with. Now, I bring this up because I, I think in the past someone criticized uh, us in the show before, I think perhaps rightly so, and the way we talk about like the homophobia of a certain type of right-wing intellectual, making it seem like it's all part of like homophobia is just... Um, an extension of their twisted sexual pathologies and their sort of closeted self-loathing. And I think that's a valid criticism because that's not what homophobia is. Homophobia is, you know, something that is omnipresent in American culture. It is if you are a man in this culture, it's something that you're steeped in, whether you're aware of it or not. It is not specifically the province of self-loathing closet cases sure. and it shouldn't be presented as a such. A cousin to misogyny. Yeah, homophobia right. is a cousin to misogyny which is like a very heterosexual thing. Like like that is like the most common manifestation of homophobia. But! but yeah, yeah, but. Stephen A. Smith voice. Mm -hmm. But, let me address. No, uh, but I'm sorry, there is <laughs> a very real thing about this certain kind of right-wing intellectual who makes human sexuality like they're a hundred percent main focus and that i'm sorry is rod Dreher, that is unmistakable to anyone with eyes in their fucking and, head and i don't think it should be beyond the pale to bring it up and it's not to even say that he's gay it's like who knows what he's repressing he probably doesn't even know he could be oh, we, he's like fucking troy mcclure yeah exactly exactly he i'm could, going to sea world <laughs> i mean he could be we made the joke before that he should have been born like now because he could have been a tumbler kid and found out maybe he's just asexual right maybe it's just that no one knows but it's some deviation from the norm that he sees as his father and his entire life is just telling people what to do, how bad they are, but specifically in the act of penetration. And discussed with them 
whether they're trans or mm. gay, because unlike him, they haven't solved the problem. And they're, yeah. it's an insult to him. Like, I got over this, and you're being accepted and loved and taken care of by all these people, despite having, you know, not uh, taken the brave journey that I did and becoming a fucking psycho. And what pisses well, and that's me why That's why the... The argument, well, you can't choose to be gay or anything or trans or whatever. It's never going to move a guy like that because he's thinking, uh, yeah, you fucking do. Right. I yeah. choose every fucking day to be straight. Okay, buddy? And, like, there's a, there's a lot of these people on the right. Like, there's that guy Robbie George. There's that guy Ryan T. Anderson. And they, they get these glowing profiles about, like, again, these people who are incredibly spiteful, nasty ghouls, and they get glowing profiles in places like the Washington Post and elsewhere that all comport to this, like, fucking template. Ryan T. Anderson is, like, you know, young, you know, charming, you know, is a, a voracious, you know, reader, uh, lives alone and plays the harpsichord, you know, like, that's, like, his main interest. It's, like, this very, like, and I think the writers even know it, and they're just, like, edging up to it, but they can't fucking say it or just... Like I said, I, I don't know if these people are like actually gay or like have homosexual desires or not, but like, they, like they they conform to a stereotype yeah. of gay men in a way that is very obvious. They are obsessed with it, and Whether and that's they, all they write about. They've yeah. chosen to make gayness like the main focus of their like conservative policy research. I'm sorry, like you know. Th- that speaks that th- that's a tell i'm yeah. sorry I, and when these guys talk they're they're obsessed with the act of penetration it fits a penis fits in an ass like a baby's a fist fits oh, in a man. Baby's yeah yeah oh yeah i yep. forgot about that yep uh for instance i actually actually don't throw walther in with this bunch i think his his psychosis no, is just he uh, is of a different drunk, nature yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. um he, no, Rod, he's, Rod, drink, Rod is, he's drinking the pain away that's for sure yeah. he's got a deep-seated rage and fucking hatred in himself of himself i should say yeah. so like yeah i mean like <sighs> with rod it's just like who hurt you and now we know it's his shitty family yeah and like i just think it like it sucks that he's now like he's dedicating his life to, to hurting other people as we've documented and as fucking Rothman, if he had, you know, if he wasn't such a fucking sponge and just sopped to this bullshit would have let the New Yorker readers know just how fucking nasty and cruel Rod really is. Same thing he did with J.D. Vance. Nothing, yeah, same. Yeah. None of the shitty parts of his biography or of his uh, ideology got into that glowing review of how he's the hillbilly whisperer. And like I said, I think I think it's important for us to make this distinction about like homophobia like isn't just a province of like this weird class of like intellectual yeah. weirdos that it's a very prevalent and common thing in American society. And it's, it, it's, it's awful. Like it's, it's just like, it like, like if you are like, if, if you're gay, like growing up or like, it's just like the standard idea is just that like you are wrong and alien in some way and that it takes people like a long time to get over it and you shouldn't have to. And, it, and like it, it is this way largely because of people like fucking Rod and Ross and fucking David Brooks and all the rest of these fucking assholes who people like the New Yorker and the New York Times want to play nice with instead of fucking just saying bye. We don't fucking we don't need your point of view. It's not enriching our intellectual lives to to you know hear your insane thoughts on why normalism versus realism in a metaphysical universe and you know we're going to be have fucking manimals soon if you know gay people are allowed to adopt kids. 
And it's just like, no, this is just an intellectual excuse for cruelty and spite against people you have no fucking business or reason to fucking even deign to open your mouth about. Shut the fuck up. If Keep I, it to yourself. If Abu Bakar al-Baghdadi put on fucking horn rims and a little <laughs> stupid bracelet, he would get a profile just like this. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's the exact same fucking thing. I just yeah. want to read one last <laughs> item that I highlighted from the Rod piece. This is apropos of nothing, but I thought it was a hilarious sentence. This is at the the Union League Club in Midtown. This is another book event full of hip-looking conservative Manhattanites and Orthodox priests. A nice mixture. Also, (laughs) in sober suits and headscarves, men and women from the Bruderhof, a a vowed community in upstate New York, stood on the fringes of the crowd behind tables stacked with copies of their magazine, Plow. <laughs> Get your subscription to Plow right now, people. Just a bunch of normal folks. Very normal. Uh, that, I will that, say, that, though, that one thing that actually was interesting and does come across in, in this article about Rod and a lot of these like intentional Christian communities that uh, Orthodox and were deeply religious Christian communities that he talks about. One thing that I found was interesting is how they all acknowledge that capitalism is evil and a problem yeah. in a way that as we've talked before like evangelical christians absolutely don't do right. like, like they've wedded christianity to capitalism in a way that you know nobody remarks upon and they don't see any conflict i did think it was interesting to hear from a lot of these like very intensely sort of like this communal like old style is that they very much do regard modernity as the enemy but they understand that capitalism is the force that is destroying that's correct their way of life even those people can figure it out it's the tradcath yeah yeah Yeah, pretty much you know it's like the libertarian thing where i go hey you're non-interventionist too and then they're like but also uh an esports team should be able to take over a rock (laughs) and i'm like oh well okay (laughs) so like i said uh this whole episode, I mean, the theme is just stop believing that these people are your friends. Stop believing that like by, you know, uh, playing nice with them, that you're engaging in some sort of intellectual weightlifting that will make your arguments better and perhaps have them uh, examine their own prejudices. They won't. I think of uh, one line uh, that's always stuck with me from um, Umberto Eco's uh, The Name of the Rose. I'm not going to quote it exactly, but the line was the difference between... Uh, the powerful and the poor is that the power have the gift of knowing who their enemies are. And that always stuck with me. So keep that in mind. Know who your enemies are. They, they certainly do. And they're fucking conning you every time they, they get, they, they're getting over on you every fucking day and it's your own fault. And we're all going to suffer as a result of it. Subscribe to the New York times for <laughs> Michael Barbaro's new article. It's just Steve Mikey. Bannon, yeah. It's better, just Mikey. Better yet, Mikey's the best. Better yet. Don't subscribe to the New York times, but do subscribe to Michael Barbaro's podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That shit is fire. Yo, <laughs> yeah. that yo, shit is fire. Damn son. Where'd you find this? Dangerous, when he talks, unacceptable. When he talks about how uh, how the Starbucks on Thirty Second Street is, is too stingy with the the sweetener, it's amazing. I love him. The one weird side effect of doing this show is that is developing actual affection just through rote reference to them for these dumbasses. And Mikey is one that I now genuinely yeah. like. It's like being a sniper. Like you watch your targets long enough. And you're like, like with Michael, I'm like, now I'm like, 
I used to be so mad at him for like some Ron, reason. Like Ron, like Ron. Yeah. If you listen to really early episodes, we just shit on Ron. We go, yeah. oh, and then, and then it's like it's just little by little. By the time you, Virgil first came on, you guys are like, no, we actually, we actually kind of love Ron, and now we all Flat really like him and think him. he's a good dad and like miss a him. Great person. Yeah, like, I gotta like, say though, that's not gonna happen with Ross. No, or no, 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 no. It's I not. could look to look down the scope at them for a week and yeah. still fuck no. you. I actually, I don't like any. <laughs> well, you, you, you're a misanthrope. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so, because like I just have nothing but contempt for all of them. Not even Ron? Like fucking Michael Barbaro and his stupid fucking Hunger Games beard. Mikey Barbaro, I got the same dream every night. I see... I see the ghosts of everybody I've owned on the podcast. They got black eyes because the eight ball hemorrhage from when I put my tweet in. They're looking at me and I go, what do you want from me? Anyway, we should get him on the show. So. Yeah. Yeah, we should. Podcast. Or brothers. go on his show. Yeah. Podcast. What? Al Pacino? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Welcome to the Pacino podcast. Uh, Stamps.com. <laughs> I would love to. If you know, if you know Al Pacino or his people, have Al come on the show. We want to do a cruising episode. He, yeah. He's honestly done way worse projects than ours. You know? <laughs> a a righteous Jack kill. Yeah. <laughs> he was like the third lead in Jack and Jill. It wasn't even like a camp. Yeah. Yeah. It was astounding. He's in that movie for half the runtime. They're, they're mind blowing. There are cold opens that me and Brendan have written in literally like two minutes that are better scripted than the last five Al Pacino That's movies. you saying that. I would never say that. I respect the man. I'm uh, nagging him. I'm trying to get him on the show. Okay, you nag him. It'll be yeah. good, good cop, bad cop. Yeah. Okay. J- like in Righteous Kill. Exactly. <laughs> Full circle. Yeah. Okay, guys. Let's, uh, let's put a bow on this Chapo Classic episode. And we've just tamped down the dirt on just three... Full graves at the moment. <laughs> I love it. Till next time, fellas. Bye. Bye. Bye bye.